The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Welcome to the programme. Coming up on the show. So it's the last day of Parliament today, Ewan. Before all the parties break up for a recess, hurrah, Labour are kicking off their local election plans today. So we'll bring you more on that with John Curtis, of course. Professor Sir John Curtis, uh, a sophologist, obviously deeply knowledgeable about the landscape of voters. Yeah, elections chat. Looking forward to that. It's also the day where the UK government traditionally bundles out all the bills it needs to get published before Parliament ends today, the final day, of course. Um, they're going to be going dig, big on the big green plan. Uh, the strategy is called Powering Up Britain. It's largely focused on increasing UK clean energy, wind, solar and nuclear. But yeah, a raft of announcements uh, around heading towards net zero gradually. Yeah, absolutely. I've been digging into this, um, but and we're going to come to it in a moment. But mainly what I'm thinking about is not to do with the three separate documents that came out on the government website this morning. But it's simply, what do I do about my house? I want to do a home renovation. I'm thinking about a heat pump, 10, 20 grand, massively expensive, needs loads of space. Uh, you perhaps need to redo all of the pipework in the house, plus replace the radiators. And so I, I sort of say, if you can't convince me to get green with a home, then how are you going to convince, you know, other people? It's, it's that kind of middle class, mm. the homeowners that need to be convinced to change matters. Yeah, I think at the moment that there are some subsidies for the poorest people, aren't there? And then mm. there are some people who have got lots and lots of money who want to be green and they're doing it. But as you say, for the vast bulk of people in the middle... At the moment, it's just blooming expensive, isn't it, to do one of these things? And I think that's probably why they're not they're not taking off yet. Then we're not quite there, are we? No, absolutely. But look, it's about more than just boilers, isn't it? Isn't it? The government's big announcement today. Bloomberg reported it as Green Day. The government insists that it is Energy Security Day. Three documents online called Powering Up Britain in order to quote diversify, decarbonise, domesticate energy production by investing in renewables and nuclear. So that's the tagline. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, said that it's not meant to put Britain toe-to-toe when it comes to the huge US green subsidies. Look, earlier this morning, I spoke to Ellen Fraser, who's a partner at the consultancy firm Beringa. She's very expert on energy and on resources. And she set out, first of all, the challenges that face the government on this huge issue. The challenge is we have some of the lowest quality homes in Europe and we really need significant amounts of money. 
And most of this effectively goes into the, the lowest uh, income demographics. And actually what we need to do is, is start to introduce schemes that actually incentivise middle income and more affluent households to start mm. shifting energy efficiency and moving as well. So these are effectively a continuation of good work that has gone before. But we need to double down on it. We need to go faster because we, we you know, we are against the clock here in, in effectively what is becoming a global race. Well, let's dig into this a bit now with our energy and climate change reporter, Will Mattis, and from the IPPR, the Associate Director for Energy, Climate, Housing and Infrastructure, Luke Murphy. Thanks both for joining us on Bloomberg UK Politics. Will, can you just walk us through the kind of the the basics, the headlines of this plan? Yeah, I mean, the the main things are um, some plans to speed up the permitting process for new renewable projects, which is something that slows down uh, renewable new renewable energy capacity. There are some measures to improve home uh, insulation, to try to uh, install more heat pumps. And there's also some announcements of which projects the UK is going to um, move ahead for carbon capture and storage. So that's uh, you know a new uh, power plant, a gas-powered plant that's uh, BP and Equinor are developing, and some hydrogen production and some other projects that will capture emissions from industry and um, mm-hmm. put them below the seabed uh, where they're where they're safely out of the atmosphere. But a lot of these things, you know, that that's like the biggest ticket item in terms of budget and it was already announced that's been planned for a long time so it is taking forward something that was already in the works but it's not really um, a new initiative that would advance the uk's climate plans much beyond where they were already going yeah and, and part of the drive to actually announce this plan today is that time is running out the high court ordered the government to basically improve its net zero plan and deliver it by march 2023 they wanted more data so the impetus of this is is the government having lost the court case luke what do you make of the plan do you think it will add to uh, the the energy transition I'm afraid I, I don't think it will. And I think in addition to that court case that you mentioned, there's also the impetus that's coming from our international competitors. The United States have passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which, uh, as myself and Will were discussing before we came on air, actually provides almost unlimited subsidies to investors and private companies and industry to invest in the transition, which and we're also seeing a, a similar response potentially from the European Union. And, and for those that were looking for a bold plan today to seize the opportunities of the global green race and accelerate our reduction mm. in emissions, I think they'll be severely disappointed. There's no new investment announced today. And that really does speak volumes about the government's lack of ambition. Uh, But then what do you make of the Chancellor saying we can't go toe to toe? There's no possibility of Britain being able to match, as you say, a bottomless pile of American money. Well, I don't think anyone's asking for the government to go toe to toe with America. I think we 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 recognise that our economy is a different size; it's of a different shape. We're a medium-sized economy. That being said, we certainly can and should be stepping up investment. Um, the uh, United States, in its through through its recent uh, legislation, is tripling its investment of a, of a, as a proportion of GDP. Um, we are falling behind. You mentioned heat pumps coming into this conversation. I think just to highlight something, you know, UK sales of heat pumps over the last year year 
uh, were 17,000 units. In Italy, it was 134,000. Poland, it was 98,000. Mm. Germany, it's 82,000. We really are falling behind, both Europe, both Europe and the United States. And, and it's because of not, not just investment, but it's also long-term certainty. You know, the, the Inflation Reduction Act provides certainty to business running all the way out to the 2040s. And we can't even decide on policies for the next one, two, three years. And that's why we're falling behind. And is that just just uncertainty or is that to do with subsidies as well? Are, are, are these European countries throwing lots of money at the problem? It's a mixture of both. We, we do invest proportionately at the moment less than Germany and France as a proportion of our GDP. The, uh, the government's own documents released today show that. We're actually now behind the US significantly because of what they've just done. But it's not just investment. It is long-term policy certainty. We've had six, seven, eight different positions on onshore wind over the last two years. We've had uh, stop-start schemes on home retrofit. We've had a lack of certainty uh, on regulations for private rented homes, uh, continually things moving around. That doesn't provide the e- either the certainty for households that you were talking about uh, who want to, to, to do the right thing and upgrade their properties, nor does it provide the certainty for wider industry, the steel industry or others, or the heat pump industry to invest uh, and skill up workers mm. for the transition. So it's a whole mix of things, really. Okay, Luke, I'll take that gold star then. Uh, I'll take the uh, the green credentials there in terms of my building works. Anyway, look, that, that aside, Will, um, Grant Shapps, of course, is now at the head of this newly created Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. I don't know how that breaks down into an acronym, impossible to say. But the emphasis you can see from this document, at least from what I've read of them, that the emphasis has clearly shifted from the focus on net zero commitment to energy security. Is it really about Russia's war in Ukraine or is this more about the kind of Conservative Party in your view, Will? Well, no, I'm not sure that there's been much of a shift towards energy security either in what they've laid out. Um, If you talk to the uh, fossil fuel industry today, they will say that they're really disappointed in this plans as well. It's not just um, the renewables industry, um, but the you know the industry association for North Sea producers say you know the UK isn't doing enough to get us to invest. And um, if you look at the Committee on Climate Change's forecast, there will still be oil and gas used in the UK by uh, 2050. And they say, you know, if you want that to come from the UK and have energy security, you need to like help us invest. And right now, the UK is really unattractive for new investment. And there had been teased the possibility that uh, a major new oil field would go ahead as part of these plans, and that hasn't happened. And so, if there is a rhetorical shift to uh, talk more about energy security, there is not a substantial one in what they are really doing. Luke, I want to talk about carbon capture and storage. This is one of the things that the government thinks that we really can compete with the Americans and the Europeans on. They're talking about putting £20 billion into into CCS. Do you you think that is a sensible use of money? And and is it going to work? 
So we do have unique kind of natural assets when it comes to carbon capture and storage. So it's definitely should be an industry that we should be looking to invest in. And one of the welcome things about it is that they are providing long-term certainty. But it does come with a but because it depends what it's used for. If it if it's used to continue to decarbonize uh, to to capture emissions from power stations uh, and for the power sector, where actually we should be rolling out cheap, abundant. Uh, renewables, which are much quicker and much cheaper, then that is that is a mistake. Where we should be using it is to help decarbonise uh, and capture the emissions from hard, to, what are called hard to abate sectors, so heavy industry. There is absolutely no reason we should be using it for the power sector when we could be rolling out renewables and that could be the backbone of our energy system. But it does have a role to play and it's good that the government is committing some money and long-term certainty to that. Um, but we shouldn't overplay its role uh, it, it, and it shouldn't be an excuse because in many respects it's still an unproven technology and it can't be an excuse not to cut emissions in the short term and I'm afraid that's the concern that many people have about the strategy today. Okay uh, a last thought to you Will then uh, it looks as if there's something in this uh, government announcement to annoy and frustrate pretty much every stakeholder. Yeah I think that's right and you know the UK um, was in the lead setting a 2050 net zero target but they have not come up with the plans that they need to get us to actually meet it. And I think a lot of people in industry are looking at this government and just sort of waiting for the next one to come in and actually um, make some new policies happen. Will Mattis, that's our energy and climate change reporter. Thank you for joining us. And the IPPR's Associate Director for Energy, Climate, Housing and Infrastructure, Luke Murphy, on those targets, those tough-to-reach targets uh, for 2050. Well, you and we began that conversation, of course, talking about my building works, uh, potential building works, and whether or not the government can sort of com- convince householders like me to invest the money, to upgrade, to think about the green transition. Voters, essentially. And recently you were staying in an even older property, a thatched property, no less. So that must have crossed your mind there. I was in a lovely thatched cottage. It was actually pretty warm in the uh, new forest. Oh, delightful. I, I took the chance to pop along to Christchurch, just down the coast in uh, Dorset, because Christchurch for me has a very uh, special place in my political memory. It was a very early formative memory uh, for me. It was, of course, the scene of a massive uh, by-election loss for the Conservatives for John Major's government. Uh, it's actually 30 years ago this year. Wow, okay. I uh, believe it or not. I don't know if you've ever been to Christchurch, but it's a beautiful part of the world. I've been to uh, the New Forest. I've not been to Christchurch itself. Yeah, it's a nice little town and lots of lovely little villages mm. around there. It's a very, it's a posh part of the country, basically. Yes. It is very, very Tory. Yeah, that's it. Absolutely. Conservative heartlands. And before that by-election, it was actually the ninth safest, it was the ninth yeah. biggest uh, Tory vote in the country. 64% of people voted Tory. And so, of course, why think about that now? I mean, what, we're five weeks away from the start of the local elections. We're like 20, 21 months away from the next general election. What's that got you thinking about? Well, it got me thinking about some of the parallels between that election and the situation now. Because now, as then, we're a long way, 13 years into Mm, a Conservative government. And now, as then, the party has changed its leader in an attempt at a fresh start. Although, last time they did it once, and we're now on uh, leader number five. Five. Uh, (laughs) Things move more quickly these days. (laughs) And now, as then, the Labour Party uh, is well ahead in the polls. And it is also led by somebody widely seen as uh, credible and serious, but I think probably somebody, it's fair to say, who hasn't really caught the imagination 
of the electorate. So this is the idea of whether Rishi Sunak can repeat the John Major trick of a huge landslide election victory sort of between now and the next general election. Yeah, and I think the most important thing uh, to just to think about here is the economy really. Is Black Wednesday was, was eight months before the Christchurch by-election. That was the point, in retrospect, the exact point where the Tories lost their reputation for economic availability. And I think the question now is whether the uh, Liz Truss quasi-quoting mini-budget last uh, September will be that same economic turning point or whether the Tories will get back their credibility in time for the next election. Well, it's the same sort of impact if you look, I'm sure, at the newspaper headlines because the mortgage rate spike is sort of similar to, to what happened during you know, Black Wednesday and the, and, and the crash of Sterling. And people are talking about that all, all the time. Whether things will get better in the next 18 months is yet to be seen. But of course, remember that Black Wednesday was a long time before the general election last time and things didn't get better for the Tories that time. Well, to talk about this and much more besides, Professor Sir John Curtis, elections guru at the University of Strathclyde, joins us uh, this morning. I wonder what you think about that idea, the parallels between that Christchurch by-election and today. Well, um, there is no doubt that one of the crucial questions we are asking ourselves is whether indeed the electorate will be willing to forgive the Conservatives the fiscal stroke financial crisis of September, October of last year. They certainly did not forgive John Major's government um, in the wake of Black Wednesday in September 1992 when the pound was forced out of the exchange rate mechanism. And they didn't do so even though uh, thereafter uh, the UK economy began to enjoy its best period of sustained economic growth and low inflation for the whole of the post-war period. And at the moment, the economic uh, backcloth facing the Conservatives in the next 18 months is not particularly propitious, not least the fact that um, on the latest OBR estimates, we're potentially looking at a 6% decline in average living standards. But of course, it's, it's not just the John Major government that presents the Conservatives with an unhappy president. The truth is that no UK government that has presided over a financial crisis, whether it's its own fault or not, has ended up doing very well at the ballot box. Uh, think of uh, Labour in the wake of the devaluation of the 19, late 1940s. It survived for a while after the 1950 election, but then threw in the towel in 1951. Um, the uh, uh, devaluation of 1967, Howard Wilson lost in 1970. The fiscal crisis of 1976, Labour lost in 1979. And of course, Gordon Brown presiding over the banking crisis of, of 2008. Labour crashed to defeat in 2010. So, um, you know, this is one of the reasons why it's going to be difficult uh, for the Conservatives. But the one thing that is different, I mean, you talked about a change of uh, a prime minister. Well, uh, in this instance, we've, we've had a change of prime minister since the, the, the fiscal event, whereas um, on all the other occasions, um, basically, it was the prime minister who presided over the financial crisis who ended up fighting the next election. In this sense, the Tories have been hoping that Rishi Sunak, a personal popularity, which is undoubtedly there, would help to turn things around. Well, um, the truth is the Conservatives are still a very long way in the, behind in the opinion polls. But in the last month or so, just beginning to be signs of it, uh, of Labour's lead narrowing a bit, there's been something like a 2% swing from 
Labour to Conservative during the course of uh, uh, course of March, and we are now looking at average leads for. Uh, the Conservatives uh, for Labour over the Conservatives in the poll up below the 20 point mark really for the first time uh, since Mr Sunak became Prime Minister. Now it's an awful long way from that to the kind of three or four point lead the Conservatives would need to get an overall majority. Um, but at least, you know, things are perhaps just a little bit brighter as we enter the spring than they have been at any other point uh, really since uh, uh, Boris Johnson was brought down um, over Partygate and uh, his less than fulsome responses about what he knew about his deputy chief whip. John, if there, if there were a Christchurch type by-election tomorrow, not necessarily against the Lib Dems, perhaps against Labour, what would be the result? Would we be looking at a Christchurch type result? Well, what we have seen in by-elections in this parliament uh, uh, so far is we have seen uh, the Liberal Democrats uh, doing well um, uh, in by-elections where electorate, the electorate thought that they were best able to, to win the seat. We saw that in Tiverton. We saw it in, in the seat in Staffordshire. And equally, we've seen Labour uh, picking up uh, seats where they look like uh, the, the best uh, able able to win. And uh, to that extent, at least, one of the potential difficulties for the Conservatives is that maybe those people who don't like the Conservatives are now sufficiently unenamored of them that they're going to be willing to vote tactically against the Conservatives. I mean, that certainly happened to the Conservatives in the 1997 uh, general election. The voters in places where the Liberal Democrats seem to be best able to win um, were uh, uh, voting for the Liberal Democrats and where Labour were best able to win, they were voting tactically for Labour. And that helps to explain why the Conservatives end up with, with fewer than 200 seats. Um, so that's one of the risks. And, you know, one of the uh, things that happened in last year's Local elections, uh, when the Conservatives were nothing like as much trouble as they have been more recently, the, for the really the first first time, you know, basically since 2010, we began to see evidence of people voting tactically for whichever party is best able to defeat the Conservatives. So yeah, that is one of the risks that the Conservatives face, and it's one of the things we'll be looking out for. Um, in uh, the local elections in May. Um, so, yeah, yeah. perhaps, and, and that therefore, as a result, we, you know, if we do get uh, any more by-elections in which um, it's the Liberal Democrats who are uh, the, the, most, the more likely challenges, then we will get uh, gains of that kind. But equally, it would be, it'll be the Labour Party if it's, if it's, uh, it's a seat where Labour had a better chance. Yeah, absolutely. Only five weeks to those local elections, of course. Um, on to other matters, though. There have been massive changes in Scottish politics. What's your take Indeed. on the election of Hamza Youssef? Well, the honest truth is, is that given that Mr Youssef had the overwhelming support of those um, elected SNP parliamentarians uh, in London and Edinburgh who uh, expressed a view um, the fact that he only won by 52% to 48% over Kate Forbes, who could only get 16 MPs and MSPs to back her, tells you that Mr. Yusuf has a little bit of a problem. Um, now, there are various possible explanations as to why Ms. Forbes did as well as she did. Um, you know, one possibility is indeed that perhaps um, SNP voters are not as... Uh, keen on what Mr. Youssef was inclined to call progressive values. You know, and obviously, uh, the question of Ms. Uh, Forbes' views on gay marriage got a lot of adverse publicity. But of course, the broader, the other issue of you know, transgender uh, uh, recognition has been a, a hot topic in Scottish politics recently. And that's something on mm. which actually we know SNP voters 
are somewhat uh, evenly divided. Um, so, you know, it may well be that it's part of that, although the truth is we certainly know that SNP members from academic research um, are pretty liberal on, on gay marriage. But, you know, if it's not that, then maybe it's because SNP members, despite the views expressed by uh, uh, the, 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 the parliamentarians, felt that Ms. Forbes was the more able candidate. Perhaps they thought she was the better campaigner. Perhaps they thought she was more likely to be a competent first minister because there have been questions raised about Mr. Yusuf's record in office. Now, so whatever the reason, this is rather uncomfortable for Mr. Yusuf. And we do now have a position because of Ms. Forbes' decision not to uh, uh, take office in Mr. Yusuf's um, uh, uh, government. And the same yeah. is true of also of her campaign manager, Ivan McKee. We've got a government, a, an SNP government. Uh, that basically is consisting of SNP par uh, parliamentar parliamentarians who backed somebody who only has the support of just over half the electorate. So there's there, there's a tension there, there's weakness. And of course, what's also true when it comes to the wider public, Mr. Yusuf is not very popular. You're looking at net evaluations of around the minus 20 mark, whereas, you know, Nicola Sturgeon, when she first became first minister, had net evaluations of around the plus uh, uh, 20 mark. So um, he's, he's, he's therefore going to need fairly rapidly to demonstrate that he can reach out to the wider public, that he can avoid what you know, has been long-standing yeah. attempts by the oppositions in Scotland to try to get people to focus on the competence of the Scottish government and yes, therefore not yeah, to yeah. vote for it. Now, these are all now issues I mean, uh, that are going to rise in Scottish politics. Co competence, policy, personality. Uh, yes, challenges, uh, extremely uh, challenged, one would say, at this point, Ewan. Yeah, Labour have one seat at the moment in, in Scotland. What does all of this mean? What does the SNP leadership mean for the next general election and whether Labour can scoop up some of those seats they used to hold? Well, that's a $64,000 question. We are looking at the moment with the SNP now 10 points ahead of Labour on average in polls of Westminster attention. That means there's been an 8% swing from uh, the SNP to Labour as compared with the position in the 2019 general election when Labour only got 19% in Scotland and the SNP worked 45%. Now, if you take that and that were to be replicated across Scotland as a whole, that might enable Labour to pick up about 10 seats. Um, but it's all very much on a knife edge. If, if that SNP lead were to widen a bit again, then the, SM, the Labour tally could be down to, you know, little more than what's on the fingers of, of, of one hand. Um, but equally, if the lead were to narrow further, then the uh, Labour's tally could go up quite significantly. And this, isn't, this isn't just of interest, you know, within Scotland. It potentially matters to Labour's ability to get an overall majority at Westminster. At the moment, okay. we say on the current boundaries, Labour need a 12-point lead to get an overall majority of one. Um, and that perhaps on the new boundaries, when they when they're in place, it might be you no know, 13, 14 points. But if Labour can pick up 20 seats north of the border, you can probably knock four points off the lead that Labour might need to get um, an overall uh, to get an overall okay. majority across the UK as a whole. So yeah. it potentially matters to Labour's chance of getting a overall majority. Given as we said, the beginning yeah. to be signs of Labour's majority across the UK as a whole beginning to narrow, yeah. the lead in the polls beginning to narrow a bit, uh, then this is potentially important. But it's not guaranteed to happen. Labour okay. are still finding it pretty difficult to get those people who want independence to vote for it. And so whether or not that SNP support is going to slip any further, well, we have to wait and see.
Sir John Curtis, thank you so much for being with us. That is uh, Professor Sir John Curtis, of course, elections guru at the University of Strathclyde. So sort of underlining the importance of Scotland and Scottish politics to the overall picture for the UK and obviously in and of itself too, but really interesting. Yeah, going to be fascinating next general election. Remember, Tony Blair in uh, 1997 won 56 seats in Scotland. I don't think anybody thinks that's going to happen <laughs> next time. <laughs> no, I think we're a long way from that. Okay, uh, just uh, a thought on today. Of course, we go into recess for Parliament. And so it is, uh, oh, my producer tells me, take out the trash <laughs> I think this day. is an American phrase. Yes, it is. It's nicked from the West Wing, but hey, everything uh, that is best is stolen. Uh, on which point we'll say, what will be some of the kind of uh, stickier issues that the government might p- put out, you know, as we go to recess? At least uh, 17 ministerial statements on yeah. all kinds of issues. We might have to review the trash tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Mariful Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepkin. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.